Hello, friends, family, foes, fungi, fish, <laughs> feathered things, ferns, ferns, ferns and plants. Hello, welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, we talk about plants. And try and to reach new audiences, apparently. <laughs> hey, fish lovers, want to hear some more? I don't know, uh, not fish lovers, fishes, particularly fishes. Fish goldfish, fish. Uh, I I've seen a video of a manta ray. Like, I think it's from a BBC show where they put, like, spy cameras in different, like, animal-type enclosures. And they made, like, a crab spy camera that they put in the ocean with other crabs. And then, so, you had, like, sort of the crab buddy there that was, like, the spy camera with hundreds of other crabs like terrifying in itself that's and then, terrifying yeah and then a ray came in and they said like one of these rays they eat like about 50 of these crabs per day and then they just like add like this this floating terror going over that group of crabs and all of the crabs are starting to build sort of a fortress and the, the harder shelled crabs are protecting the softer shelled crabs and then the ray is going on it's like a terrifying scene from under the sea and in the middle is like this little robot kind of crab like- with a camera trying to film all of this it's like UFOs, right? Like it's kind of this like it's, what we imagined in the nineties. Like if the, yeah. if the aliens would come and like suck us up like cows. Completely otherworldly to imagine that. Like the the way these crabs interact, and they have these manta rays that are this terrifying thing that comes in and swoops in and then like eats one of them mm. and sort of sucks out the crab out of its shell and just like drops the shell in front of the other crabs that just see like their their buddy there being completely emptied it's just like a horror movie it's absolutely a horror movie and it's just but i have that thing also with sea stars like i mean there's some some certain sea like there's the crown of thorns sea star which is invasive in um like the the great barrier reef in australia and they really damage the reef and you just think really like a, a sea star like that's gonna be like but how like if if it's kind of that feeling i mean this is very cruel but like if you're if you're the prey of a sea star like maybe Yes. that's what was meant to happen in this universe that you got eaten by a star but like then you see a swarm of them and you see them like moving around and it's freaking terrifying like also like sea urchins in some areas these sea urchins are so invasive and and destroying the the ecosystem it's just like a little ball of needles sitting somewhere mm. but there's actually divers going in there and with a little hammer and underwater just like smashing them all culling them because they are very very bad for the local ecosystem um yeah under, underwater is terrifying like i've like my <laughs> let's like, stay up I, here I, I i like like going for swimming and and diving and and this sort of thing but i think my deepest fears really are all related to water just like open water and imagining what's underneath me is is terrifying and now that i've seen like the the, the robot crab and its friends and the ray i'm just like this is all this is not this meant is like- to, for me to exist there did you watch lots of jaws as a kid like is it one no. of these kind of something about a film because you it's not like you grew up with a lot of open water right no, no. So- I mean, I'm, I'm very far away from the ocean and and the oceans that we have here like the, the german coasts are very shallow like mm, it's quite friendly really like yeah yeah it's it's like literally the water goes away every six hours and you can walk where the water was so it's really not that terrifying um yeah. I did I did make the mistake of trying to swim in this ridiculously cold country like a few weeks back. I mean, now we've had a bit of a heat wave, but it was like quite cold. Um I had the first for the first time this realization of how you can actually get cold shock and it can prevent you from breathing and that's how you die. Like that's how you like dr- like it hadn't really realized like, I hadn't really understood that properly how the cold can like freeze up your rib cage and just like make it impossible to like <sighs> in the water. Yeah. Um 
Yeah, yeah. Because I made that experience with my pool that I, I fully fu filled in my garden, but it's very, very cold still. And um, when I went in there, it was exactly like a cold shock. Like it was 20 degrees and everybody knows like 20 degree water is the most dangerous. Um, Do we know that? Is that, no, is that no, a, it's a, it's a, a, a scientific <laughs> fact? I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I it's believe more, you. It's actually more dangerous than like the cold sea of of Great Britain. Um, Probably, especially like, like a small paddling pool. A small paddling pool, like somewhere in Berlin, is definitely scientifically proved more dangerous than the, the Great British seas. Um, yeah. So, apart from swimming in the cold water, what what have you been up to? So, I think I mentioned already on the pod that like maybe about a year ago, I did this um, natural dyeing kind of course where we went like. It's a very hipster thing to do. You go to a small garden and they were growing these indigo plants. So it's like a plant. It's one of the few plant varieties that actually makes blue colored pigments inside its leaves. Um, and then we had a sort of day session where they showed us how to use these plants to get the indigo, the blue color into the like fabric. So you can use protein fabrics, which are like silks and wools, or you can use cellulose fabrics, which is like linens or cottons um, and how the different structures of these fibers and the different chemistry of the pigments themselves all mix and match um, and then you can add other chemistries so you can add like metals in to help with the binding or you can change the ph to change the colors um, so there's all these kind of like chemistry botanical magic things involved um, which was really really fun and after that i bought some of the the extract from this it's indigofera tinctoria which is the species and i took bought some of the basically indigo powder it's the extracted pigment um, and on the weekend, I played around with dyeing with that. So we did the shibori, which is this Japanese, like when you do the folding of the cloth and then you dip it in the indigo. And then when you unfold it, you have these like different patterns depending on how you folded. Um, and we also did some avocado skin dyeing, which is like a pink color you can get from the skins of avocado. So we were playing around with that. And it was, it was really, really fun. It was, again, like just what I love doing. So something creative, something planty, something kind of chemistry-y as well. Um, it's kind of almost like doing a protocol as well because you have to work out how to reduce um, the indigo because it has to be in the reduced form to be absorbed into the cloth. And then when it hits the, the air, it oxidizes and it becomes, it changes from this re reduced form, which is kind of a greeny yellow color into this permanent like um, insoluble blue color once the oxidization happens. So there's a really like cool process that's happening. Um, and how, yeah, how really stable fun. is that? Like, Theoretically, it? it's... Yeah, theoretically, it's quite stable after you've um, dyed it. So it's it's quite um, insoluble and bound to the fiber. Again, it depends on what type of fiber it is and it depends on how you've pre treated the fiber. Um, indigo itself, this is quite a strongly binding dye. So like it's quite easy to have it and sort of keep it there. But different dyes have their all different properties and they have different ways of reacting with the fabrics and with the other additives um and they also have different light fastness so even if the dye itself sort of binds it can also get bleached more readily by like the light depending on what that that pigment is so there's like all these really cool things you can research and and get into um and I did a little bit of that on the weekend so that was really nice it was really fun <laughs> that sounds that's sounds really exciting like i i love doing some like hobby chemistry um, I mean, my chemistry right now is like doing pool chemistry and it's mm -hmm. like, it's, I would say it's much less fun, objectively less fun than <laughs> doing dyeing with clothes, but, uh, still like I have to control pHs and I have like a little test strip that I dip in there that tells me like the pH, the, the parts per million of the chlorine and, 
um, something that's called the alkalinity of the water, which is sort of a measurement for the, solo- uh, the dissolved salts and mm-hmm. uh, how much buffered your pool is essentially. So if you add acid to it, how quickly the pH will change and will it like take a lot of acid because it's buffered so well or if it will it react very quickly to small amounts and so on. And it's fun to play around with that and then um, trying to adjust that and um, getting like the pH just right and everything. I don't know if the lesson here is that like we're very sad because we're like trying to find like chemistry or biology, like biochemistry in our normal lives. Or if the, the answer is, hey, guys, even if you leave the lab, you can still find biochemistry or chemistry in your... I think it's what's, both. What's the answer? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's definitely both because I really do miss the lab, I have to say. Like I really, there's, there's really days where, or like I think back with all of this nostalgia of, of the lab work that I was doing, even even like the mundane stuff, like filling in tip boxes and preparing like buffers in, in preparation for experiments the next week and stuff like that. Um, I would really like to be doing this sort of thing again. I don't miss so many other things about the research career, especially like the career part, especially like the getting employed and and finding a job for a long time part in, in Germany. That's all something that I, I'm really glad I don't have to deal with. But all of like the day-to-day work in the lab, doing experiments, thinking about them, designing experiments, having good conclusions from them. I, I miss all of that so much. So yeah, that's why <laughs> I get the chance to drop some like organic acids in my pool to lower the <laughs> pH. I'm all up for it. <laughs> Should we talk about some plants here? <laughs> let's let's talk about some plant science. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Ooh, actually, Yoram, I want to start with a favorite plant. Can you play the favorite plant jingle? See. Hey! That actually worked. Why does this button work and the other one doesn't? I waited until Yoram spent, like, a couple of minutes trying to find the right button before telling him it was the wrong button. My favorite plant. I'm actually related to the dyeing that I've been doing. I've been looking at other plants that you can use to dye different things, and one of them that came up is Carthamus tinctorius. And again, the tinctorius is like similar to the indigo um, species part of the name. Um, so I think that tinct is like this this coloring, right? This this dyeing part of, of the name. Um, and this is commonly called safflower. It also has a common name that is bastard saffron, um, which I think is a little bit rude as a common name. I know a lot of, I don't know if <laughs> plants and animals have common names, which are like common duck or, you know, drab bird. Um, but... Yeah, bastard bastard saffron is basically because it has these um, orangey bits which can look a little bit like saffron, so I think it can be used to fake saffron. But this is something that has been used previously as a colourful dye, and it's quite cool because it has these kind of um, flowery things that look almost like a dandelion. So you've got like this a little bit fluffy look and these kind of yellow tips, but... Yeah, maybe more like a thistle, actually, if we're, if we're really being specific. I'm, I'm struggling to describe it. But anyway, these, these are orangey-red parts. You can extract from them first a yellow-colored dye just by sort of steeping it in cold water, so basically making a, a safflower tea, um, but in kind of colder water. And then once the yellow colors have washed away, you can do a second step where you treat it with acidic um, solution, or first in an um, alkaline, sorry, and then acidic. And from the, that, you can get these really dark red colors. Um, 
And even once you've got the red, it gets a little bit more complicated because as I mentioned, when it comes to dyeing, it doesn't just rely on the, the pigment you have, but it also relies on the, the fabric that you're dyeing. So if you take that red looking dye liquid and you shove some silk in there, you actually get something that's more orangey and not red. And that's because there's a second dye hiding under the, the red, which is a second yellow that the safflower has. So you've already got thrown out one yellow. You've got a second yellow that's sort of in there with the red and the silk binds both the yellow and the red. So you get orange. But if you use um, something like a cotton, you just get a nice pure red because the cotton can't bind to the yellow. So again, I think that's kind of a cool chemistry -y fact. But I think one of the other cool things about this flower is that the red dye that you can make from safflower is apparently linked to the original term of red tape. So mm -hmm. apparently back when they were it, like, you know what the term red tape means, your arm, right? Yeah, it's like paperwork, like bureaucratic paperwork, right? Yeah. So apparently this word originally came from basically somebody trying to do basic administration so the um charles the fifth was the king of spain and also the holy roman emperor um this is in the early 16th century and he kind of wanted to organize his empire and he's like the way to organize this is to do some admin we've got to sit down and like get our crap together and he basically didn't have excel back in those days so instead he like made some dossiers and he got all the important admin rules sort of in one dossier and tied it up with some red string and then if you sort of did processes you had to go through this red string dossier to understand the right way to do things. So apparently that's the origin of the term red tape. And apparently again, and I'm using a lot of apparently because I couldn't find super convincing evidence of this online. Um, this red was coming from this original safflower, but it's also kind of nice because the safflower itself to even get that red, there's kind of like a lot of like protocols you have to follow just to get the red dye to dye the red tape <laughs> that is then about the protocol so i thought it was like a nice kind of way of summing <laughs> up even if it might be slightly mythology the, the red tape to make more red tape to make yeah. more red tape it's it's a process you know everything's a bit of a process <laughs> oh that's that's very nice um uh, I, I I wrote a short thing as well. Like it's a it's a follow up to one of your stories. Um, it's about eDNA. Do you remember eDNA and what you told us about it? I told us. Did I tell you? I think we both discussed a paper from a while back where they eDNA is environmental DNA, and it's basically you can take vast quantities of like you can take bits of water or you can even suck it up from air um so it's like just dna that's kind of scattered around the environment because we always are shedding cells and all, not just us but everyone is always shedding cells and there's bits everywhere and yeah. i think the paper we covered they actually went to a zoo with one of these like water cyclonic vacuum cleaners filled with millicu water so filled with really pure water and they vacuumed the zoo air and from that they could like say hey this zoo definitely has like some zebras because we got zebra dna in our vacuum cleaner exactly uh that's exactly the the thing that they uh, did in the past and now the same group went further with their idea. So they had a look at um, not what you can do when you go out with a vacuum to collect samples, but they looked at places where samples are al already collected and if we can extract eDNA from them. And they found um, air quality uh, stations where they essentially are big vacuums that is blowing uh, air or, or pushing air through a filter 
and then measuring like particulates in there, figuring out if like particulates are too high in the air, and you have to do measures and stuff, uh, like mm-hmm. countermeasures. So like and pollution stuff. stuff that can be like, yeah. I think PM two point five. These kind of like small particles that can get into the lungs and um, yeah. really harm people's health, right? And I think this was in the, in the United Kingdom. They went across the country to a couple of different of these air quality stations, took some of these filters, and even took some of the filters that they kept in storage in archives, and then did uh, DNA the extractions on them and could find lots and lots of different organisms from these filters uh, in there. And they could also relate like the, the exposure time of the filter to air to the, the number of, um, of different species they could, uh, they could find on there. And with that, they, they sort of proposing, including that in the protocol of measuring air quality um, and also using that to measure biodiversity. Because with this, you can like track species that otherwise would be really difficult to find uh, because they might be like nocturnal or like very small or have mm-hmm. weird habitats but as long as they're shedding something in the air that can be detected by these filters you can see the presence of these animals somewhere um, and they could show that like they found lots and lots of like also plant DNA for example with obviously with pollen and stuff that, that was uh, caught on the filters and with that they could really map out a large chunk of biodiversity in the areas where these sensors are. So this could be really cool for further sort of long-term biodiversity monitoring um, to estimate like relative developments of biodiversity in the future just from the air filters that are already in place. So that is very cool, but there is a downside of this. And I don't know if we talked about this on the pod because it it came out, there's a paper that came out in the middle of May and I I don't think we've discussed it yet, but I actually don't know what month we're in right now. So maybe yes. Um, It came out in Nature (laughs) Eco Evo and it's discussing the potential ethical concerns of this. And this is the fact that if you're vacuuming up a ton of eDNA, some of that eDNA is going to be human DNA. Um, so they term this human genetic bycatch, and it's basically in your attempt to catch all this other stuff, you get human genetic information. And they discuss that there are some ethical dilemmas regarding the consent, the privacy, the potential to surveil people, who owns that data if you know you've got this these sequences that are arriving in these um, DNA. So very cool technology, but as with always with the advancing technology. Yeah. Some some things to consider there, I think. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. Like, I didn't think about that, but I don't know actually what how the protocol works when they extract that DNA and specifically how they are identifying it because I imagine they don't do like a ton of whole genome sequencing. They will look like they will have some sort of PCR amplification step in there that amplifies certain regions that are characteristic. And I don't know how that particularly works and how you can then like get more information than there was a human or there was like one of four different humans whose DNA we captured here. Um, but rather than like, if you can you identify myself from that sample or not? Like, I don't know how that works. So yeah, but it's definitely it's definitely a concern. Yeah, that's um, yeah. So they they definitely like in this they were saying well it's already easy to like you can you could see in their um bycatch that there was like Y chromosomes already so you could sort of already start to get down to like is this male or is this female yeah so they also found that some of the the dna that they got the human dna was not like these small fragments they also got like long read dna so they could do um this single long read and they got up to one hundred forty-eight thousand base pair long oh yeah that's that's quite long 
that's quite a lot. Um, they also got mitochondrial DNA. So basically they got something that was almost as long as the full mitochondrial reference genome. Um, so I think, yeah, quite a bit is the answer. And yeah, not necessarily that fragmented is the answer. Yeah. Although like in the in the eDNA paper, I just looked at that as well, um, they particularly amplified the 16SR RNA, so ribosomal RNA, mm -hmm. um, to target vertebrates. The uh, COI gene, um, so the COI gene targeting invertebrates, and an ITS region targeting plants and fungi. So they were particularly amplifying just Looking like a short something. stretch in there. So even if you can then say okay this this ribosomal rna is human it's probably not specific enough to to map like movement patterns of individual humans with that method but mm. i mean you could do other methods on that like you can amplify other regions once you have the dna extract you can you could look for just long reads of humans and then uh, map map that out um so but then you would also need like references so like it's it's something for a dystopian future where that could be a big problem and it's something it's important to think about that early I totally agree um but in terms of like paranoia and and being like oh they're tracking my dna and they're like following me everywhere i go i think we're not there yet because like most people don't have their full genome sequenced and stored and linked to their name that's only like a small set of people that have that at this point I think we've we've hit like a weird case where I'm more paranoid about something than you are. I'm like I'm actually I like I don't think I'm personally paranoid, but I think like I mean it's not you. It's like one of your second cousins twice removed has to have done it, and then they can pretty easily work out. Like I think it's not. I don't know. Like um, I've listened to enough crime podcasts to think this is possible. I, I I'm think also <laughs> I, I, I'm more afraid of all of like the twenty three and Me stuff where people willingly yeah, exactly. like put but their like, data in databases and 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 But do you know for certain that your brother or your cousin or your like grandparents or I don't know someone didn't do that like Yeah. I've got a lot of cousins. I'm not guaranteed that like one of them didn't do it and if if they did eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I I I get the concern and I think that's why I said like I think it's important to think about these things early before you get like all excited and roll out like a mass like dna extraction program nationwide to map all of this and then suddenly you realize oh as a bycatch we just mapped like dna sequences of our population um it's important to think about these things early but i personally right now see a lot of different scenarios where my data is in, in danger that's not linked to like my skin cells and some air filter I mean, personally, I, I click, like, agree all on all of those tracking things on my computer. So, like, I have other things to worry about. But I do think we should rename the podcast Plants, Pets, Paranoia and Panic and just go from there. <laughs> yes, let's do that. Oh, I actually have a person, Yaram. Oh, you also have a person today. Diversity in the place. Science. Um, the person I want to talk about from diversity... No, I mean... It She's a scientist. She's a great scientist. I got to hear a talk from her um, last week as kind of part of my job, which was really cool. Um, her name is Rose A. Marks, and she is a postdoc who works at two locations. She's, she's working in Michigan State University in the U.S., but she's also working at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, which is very relevant for her research. Um, and the research that she has focused on is the understanding of desiccation tolerance in plants. 
And I think we've like kind of touched on this a little bit before. The fact yeah, we, that we we talk about like resurrection plants, for example, that yeah, are completely dry, and then water comes in, and suddenly they spring back to life, like some sort of weird, like godlike yeah. creature that that defies death. Yeah, and somehow they sort of managed to get completely dry while not, you know, exploding from changing. You know, like when you get dry, if you don't turn your photosystems off, you can also like kind of backlog everything and, and break this. Like they have these like really adaptive ways of responding to drought that they kind of don't get really ill. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so she was talking a little bit about this in the discussion and like what I didn't realize is that there's a ton of resurrection plants out there. So I think we 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 most famously know this Rose of Jericho. So this plant that kind of forms a little spin effects like bundle and then if you wet it, it opens up and becomes green in like a few hours, um, starts to grow again. But she raised the fact that, you know, this is not a monophyletic group there's representatives across kind of all of the different plant groups. So flowering plants, angiosperms, but also like ferns, lycophytes, bryophytes. This is these kind of mossy things. And it's about 500 million years of evolutionary divergence between these different events of desiccation tolerance. Um, So it looks like it's kind of arisen independently in all these different lineages that like different plants and completely like completely kind of not related as it were within the plant group have worked out how to do this thing where they almost die, but they actually can come back again. Um, And part of the argument is that even though these are very divergent like um, lineages and so therefore like the evolution of this desiccation has sort of come up convergently, like they've sort of all created it newly instead of having a common ancestor where everybody had it. Um, At the same time, this understanding desiccation is something that the plants sort of had that they had to develop when they came to land. So there's kind of these conserved pathways underlying how how this might work mechanistically. Um, So she's looking at this across different landscapes. So this is why like being in South Africa is quite helpful because they have a lot of like the richest diversity of resurrection plants that we know of is in um, Southern Africa. And like this, this part of Africa is also one of these biodiversity hotspots as far as like the, the flora that you can find there. Um, So she's looking to sort of understand how this has happened in evolutionary time and and the genes and stuff that's driving it. Um, Also like variation within a single species. So even just one species, depending on the landscape, it might live in, it can have um, different tolerance, um, so then comparing across different sort of, uh, yeah, environmental gradients, basically. So I think this is just kind of objectively cool work. But then on top of that, um, she's really interested and invested in understanding the lack of equity that is present in science. And this is something that you and I have talked about a lot, but I don't think we've talked about her papers so far. I think we haven't seen, we've, we've somehow missed them. Um and this is like specific to the plant sciences. So it's kind of like more relevant to the podcast and some of the other things we've talked about in the past on this topic. Um, she had a publication in 2021 in Nature Plants that's called Representation and Participation Across 20 Years of Plant Genome Sequencing. Um, and I think the title sort of explains what was done there. Um, but basically they found that, yes, there's been this huge increase in the amount of, of genome sequence and the, the quality of the genome sequence, but there's still a lot of taxonomic gaps 
And there's also a lot of geographic gaps as far as the nations that are publishing this. Um, unsurprisingly, it's basically the global north as well as China who are really focusing, like dominating in these fields. And this is despite the fact that the species that are studied themselves can have quite wide geographic distribution and also sort of evolutionary origins. Um, and they just she discussed this in this paper in the context of, you know, the past colonialism and what's driven this. Um, so, for example, at that time, this is a couple of years ago now, um, the genome sequences were really dominated by China. They had done like over 200 assemblies and the USA also over 200 assemblies. And then sort of like Europe as a collective continent, that's like also nearly 200 assemblies. Um, and basically of the genomes that we had, that's three quarters of them came from these three regions. So Europe, China and the USA. And of course, comparatively, there was very few that came from, okay, Oceania, but also South America specifically, only nine assemblies at the time, and Africa, only one assembly. Um, having said that, a lot of the, the plant genomes that had been assembled did have, like, were native to, um, or also had like this very high economic importance in these regions, so in Africa and South America, but they've been researched or, or sequenced by researchers who are not there. Um, so they were having kind of a look at these patterns and I think, I think it's kind of what you and I would expect at this stage, like based on what we've heard. Um, but it's really nice to have this in, um, like a very nice data format. There has a really nice, um, graphs in this, uh, figures in there. So like that one of the, the figures, figure four, it looks at like sort of the disparities between where the species originated from and where the sequencing, um, had actually occurred. So as I said, like nearly all of the crops that were native to Africa and South America had been sequenced off the continent. So basically by scientists outside of these regions. So that was a 2021 paper. And then in February this year, there was kind of a follow-up study um, in PNAS. It wasn't really focused just on the genomes, but instead it was looking at about 300,000 papers that have published in the plant scientists over the last um, two decades. And again, looking at these potential disparities and biases across nations and also across genders and also across like taxonomy of the plants. Um, they looked at really a whole slew of things. Um, so I'm just going to like run through a little bit of some of the highlights of that. Um, they looked at the global patterns of the plant science publishing again. And this time they were linking it to the GDP of um, those countries, so basically the wealth of those countries. Um, and also like what percentage of the GDP the countries were spending on research to see like, okay, maybe it's not a research, like a wealthy country, but maybe they're spending more money on research and that's why they've got. So, so I was trying to look at like the causing factors of this. Unsurprisingly, like the more GDP it is that the more you can publish, I think we, we know that. But then they can say things like, well, also there's some outliers. There's some countries where like they don't have a very high G GDP, so but they are publishing more so this can maybe be a clue as to you know what we can do to promote publishing the plant sciences um also looking at like that that research output on the basis of like population generally so of course you know if we're looking at something like the us or china these are huge populations so is, is that what's biasing these figures um focusing on things like where the research is being like um undertaken in those countries so is it like in more rural settings or is it in more of these like high density urban areas which also means that you can get misrepresentation of different types of plants in different areas as well that's that's also part of it um they also looked at collaboration and i was actually a little bit surprised to see that like 
more than two thirds of the publications, so 71% of the publications, were written by authors from just one nation. So that means there's no like international collaboration and only 22% of studies were two nations and only 5% were three nations. Um, and that's even when there's quite a high number of authors, so four or five authors on the paper, um, you just don't end up having that many international collaborations. And of course, then there's also a preference of who collaborates with who. So broadly speaking, people basically want to collaborate with the the wealthier nations. Um, and within wealthier nations, there's a bit more tendency to collaborate wealthy nation to wealthy nation. Um, but again, like it's basically showing that people are choosing to go with these wealthy um, nations. And again, that gives a bias. So within Europe, there's quite a bit of like a bit more cross-country collaboration, but it still like stays within Europe. So it's still sort of keeping it a bit more in this in this continent. Um, they also looked at things yeah. like the the difference in the impact factor of the journals that were published by these different countries or the, dif- the different groups. There wasn't actually that much difference in, in the impact factors, like only one point, I think something between um, three and four average impact factor. But there was this really high difference in the citations that were given to these different authors. Um, There was also differences in the amount of research that was able to be published open access, and that can be linked to the fees that open access um, sometimes uh, requires. Um, They also saw a huge difference in how publications were going into like these more elite journals. So this is like not looking just at the mean, but looking at these kind of things that have an impact factor higher than they they called it seven. So above seven was what they were calling like an elite journal. and then one of the, the quite interesting things is that it's a bit of a difficult thing to do, but they were also trying to look at, at gender disparities. Um, they have a big section discussing how, of course, it's really difficult to assign gender and, you know, assigning gender when you don't know somebody's anyway, like hugely problematic. But they said what we, we could do is we could look at the names on the papers and we can say, is this name normatively associated with masculinity or normatively associated with feminism, at femi- femininity, not feminine. Who knows about the feminism? That's my bias coming through. Um, and they, they, if somebody's <laughs> called Simone de Beauvoir, then you have negativity. Tegan burned the system down, um, and they used this as like the proxy for gender. And again, like. Uh, Completely unsurprisingly, they could find that there was far more papers still that are led by authors with these like nominatively masculine names. Um, and they could also like kind of look at how the imbalance had changed with time. Not that much as it turns out. Um, and they could also look at how it varies by country. Um, Japan, 14%, nominatively female. India, 21%. Netherlands, 23 Switzerland, 24 Israel, 25 That was on the low end of the scale. Um, on the other end of the scale, Poland, 61%, nominatively female. Argentina, 57% female. Italy, 41%. Brazil, 41%. Spain, 38%. So they sort of did a little bit of this, like, what's the... There's only two countries where you have on average more like female red names on the papers than male red names correct yarn uh, <laughs> i mean they weren't doing all the countries i think this was based yeah it was only like the 20 nations with the highest publication rates um still. so yeah i mean it's still 
Not amazing. And then they also looked at something which I found really interesting. So I, I saw this presented um, when when Rose came to our, our gave, give a talk. She presented this figure. And I was like, oh, that's just a really interesting, cool figure. So she showed the top 20 most studied plant species across all studies. Yaram, do you have some guesses for what might make that top list? Uh, rice, maize, wheat, um, tomato, tobacco... Um, I mean, Arabidopsis, uh, is that counted in there? It's like, it's all species, not just like commercial crop species. It's all right? species, yeah. Yeah, so Arab- Arabidopsis, then uh, Klami, Demonas, Reinhardi. Um, oh, no Klami. I think we're not including fake plant plants. <laughs> okay. Um, but basically, you got it. I mean, so yeah, Arabidopsis is by far the most. Like, yeah. I think the next one is wheat, and that's got 5,000 and Arabidopsis. 30 that's like six times more than the next one so like arabidopsis wheat maize tomato rice hordium barley soya uh, apples tobacco brassica napis is one of the oil things solanum tuberosa potatoes nicotiana benthamiana that's another like lab plant it's kind of so like yeah it's it's literally all the things that you would expect it's basically the the valuable crops um so that was really interesting to see. But then they also did a figure, and it's figure seven in the PNAS paper, where they looked at how this changed by country. Um, and then you can sort of have this idea that, you know, USA, China, Japan, Germany, Canada, Australia, Spain, Israel, these are these kind of top publishing con- countries. And they are all really focusing a lot on Arabidopsis and then usually a couple of crops that are quite valuable to them. So like, you know, Australia is really into the wheat research. Um, Germany, you really like barley, apparently. Who knew? Um, (laughs) USA, maize. Not a surprise there. Um, But then if you look at, at different countries, you see that they have some focus on other species that might be particular to them. So in India, the top published species, even higher than Arabidopsis, is Cicer arietinum. Do you know what that is? No, I can't even, like, is that chickpea, maybe? That's chickpea, exactly. So, like, again, it's a really important crop, and it's an important crop in that region, but not not making it past the rubber. So you can, again, see that there's, like, not just this imbalance, but there's also this, like, imbalance based on sort of important by those country, and then, you know, more um, niche plants, like the ones that are relevant locally, tend to not be studied at the global scale but get studied you know a bit more at the local scale which is obviously then really problematic if the dominant scale is just focusing on arabidopsis 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 and again we love arabidopsis um but yeah i I don't know like it's i think it's all a very complicated issue I, i have a really hard time of like pointing fingers and being like this is where like this and that country or institutions or system is is wrong because like of course the research about like locally important crops is done locally because if it's not mm. local then we also have a problem with it because we say like look the the countries with all of the money they do the the research of the local crop that's not even growing there where they are like they they're sort of taking away the results and the funding and all of the stuff from the countries that actually grow the crops so it's 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 really like it's it's more complex than that and also there's the whole thing about like isn't it sort of like a necessity that or like 
responsibility of countries with a high GDP, so rich countries, to spend a lot on the research that then everybody can use the results from and build their own stuff on instead of saying, oh yeah, this crop is not important locally here in Germany, so screw it, we're not doing anything on it. And then the countries with the small GDP, they can't afford to do all of the research. But then mm. there's also the complicating factor that access to the results is not really completely free and equitable across the world. So that's also a problem then again. So yeah, that's why I find it really hard to like be like, I mean, obviously I want more more equity, more access to, to research tools and also more shared knowledge. Um, but thinking about that, like, richer countries are doing more of the research even on crops that are like publishing i mean it was it started about like publishing like reference genomes right um which is like an expensive thing to research like it's like tech like it's technically expensive it needs a lot of like brain power um so it's like you have to acquire the right staff that can do this. You have to have the right machines. You have to have the expertise on, on, on site and all of that. So it's sort of understandable how only rich countries can afford that. Um, but that's resources, right? I mean, it's like argument for acquiring the right brain power. Like that's training. That's not brain power in the, the training, pure sense. That's Yeah, but that's training, training is also like linked to resources, right? Like it's like how can you afford to have like a university system in your country that has like a high level of education plus then research facilities that have the funding to hire um, PhD students and postdocs and so on. And if mm. you don't have all of that, then like it doesn't mean that the, the people locally are stupid, but they just don't get the opportunity to use their brains because they they don't have the support infrastructure. But that's part of the argument about like that these opportunities should be spread then right i mean that's that's yeah. kind of the argument um but i think like to me i think it, it was like one step more basic than that it's just like you know if you think about the most important crops in the world like for me i can i can very easily think like potato rice maize wheat but i'm less likely to think about things like cassava or plantain or like yeah chickpea yeah. or like these other things but in in other places they are Pro, like providing a hugely important part of nutrition and also like you know in the context of change we do need to think about how we diversify and, and what our options are and you know and I think like yeah. the problem is that like if you if you have the system where it's biased towards Arabidopsis and wheat it also means that then if I see a paper that is on chickpea I think like ah that's not that globally important. I'm not sure I care about that. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I, there can be that it is less globally important, but how much I weight it as unimportant is probably not, I probably unfairly weighting it's even more unimportant because there's so much research. And we know this, like Arabidopsis is Arabidopsis because we chose it to be Arabidopsis. You know, like we said, this should be a model species and its value is that we have done more research. So therefore it's easier to do more research, right? These, these things do magnify, like they are like this self-fulfilling as well. So I think it's, it's not just like, yes, I mean, there's, it's obviously like these huge systemic issues, but I think part of it is also like, oh, like I... Like, yeah, I had to look up what this chichir thing was. I didn't know what it, it was. Like, I, I had to think, like, what is this species? Whereas, like, I think, I mean, I'm probably screwed some of these up, but, like, I think I can name most of the those top, like, I see the species name in most of those top 20 plants. I've never worked with them, but I think I, I recognize the the scientific name. But, like, yeah, I couldn't tell you what cassava was necessarily, I don't think, what the species name was. 
Yeah, <laughs> I also don't know. Um, but I mean, in the, in the end, you're right. Like, what what really would help is like a redistribution of the resources so that everywhere around the world there can be the opportunities to do the research and then to focus on what's locally important. I mean, also like in plant breeding, it's like a, a huge thing that um, that even though like everybody's researching wheat, there's a huge variety in the different wheat cultivars. And mm. like something that you grow in the south of France, you can't grow that in northern Germany and that's all within Europe. And then if you think on a, like a global scale, you have even more of these like in, sort of in, uh, uh, incompatible cultivars to regional climates. Uh, and so it's more even more important to have like a wheat research institute or breeding institute for sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, if they want to grow wheat there, that they can't just take like even if if Germany would donate all of their wheat grains, they are probably not well adapted it's to useful, to the local yeah. climate. So you you first have to like empower them to do the research there to breed the varieties that they need or even breed different crops that they need. Um, and yeah, in the end, it's it would be better to redistribute a lot of the resources and um, and empower so them. I do- like I do kind of get what you're saying. I mean, the problem with all these these papers is like when you when you start looking at you're like, oh my goodness, this is just like such a deep. It's clearly systemic. It's clearly a deep rooted, like a long lasting problem. It's building on itself. It's self fulfilling. It's self like like expanding. I mean, it's a bad. What's C the word. answer? Like, <laughs> like this capitalism. That's the problem. I mean, what's the answer? This, but I mean, I think I think still think there is value in looking at these papers even if you're like yeah i'm not surprised that like i'm not surprised there's more male names than female names but like it is interesting to see how it's changed over time i was like i'm not surprised that like all this is happening but it is interesting to see like the collaboration thing it did surprise me like 70 percent of people are collab only in their like same country this i was like oh i thought we'd moved uh, beyond that especially you know like this this it was yeah. like still interesting to sort of see how far although like we coming s- back to red tape i can i can see how hard like just remembering my like research career how hard it was to like d- do anything with finances and funds and exchanging it and then doing it across country borders even within the european union was a pain and then if you yeah. imagine that like outside of the european union and then you can quickly see how it's just like the easier option to have sort of maybe like an informal cooperation, but not like a fully fledged co- collaboration with like an uh, another place, and it's terrible. Like it would be ob- objectively better if more of this collaboration could happen. Well, again, I think that's the thing. I think that's like the always the thing of the bias. It's like not nobody's saying there's going to be knowing it's going to be an answer to it, like and give it a, a solve. It's not a solve. Like it's not something where it's like, oh, now I know I can solve this. Like there, there's there's other reasons, and they can be shit, but there's other things behind this. Yeah. But, you know, we then have to admit, you know, we have this idea of how science works and, and science works. We go to conference, we share ideas, we set up collaborations. Actually, we don't. As it turns out, we yes. like collaborate with our next door neighbor who's also German um, and like is in the same lab as us. Like that's the answer. And and we we even if we're not solving it, we have to at least go into the world acknowledging that we have this platonic ideal of what we are as scientists and that's not necessarily what we are. And I think that's at least a starting point, right? I mean it's like yeah. it's yeah, still yeah. interesting from a oh like I I was surprised by that seventy percent. I I understand why I shouldn't be, but I was still like, 
Yeah. Huh. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I I fully agree that this this like studies like the this as something that can sort of debunk this this ideal that we have of the scientific world, like this ideal of everybody shares their knowledge and collaborates across country, and like we're all searching for the one big truth and we're helping each other on the way there. And um, yeah, that's not how it works in reality. Like in reality, so many things are getting in the way of that. Like this is something that. As in a research community, we want to present ourselves like this, but in reality, that's not how stuff happens. And these these studies are the tool to prove that to to show like, look, it's not. <laughs> I think like yeah. So we went we went a little bit into plants, pets, and paranoia again. I mean, I, I want this to be like a bit upbeat. It was really nice. I really enjoyed this talk. So this is again a reminder. Rose A. Marks is is the name of a scientist. Like I think she's doing cool research both in this understanding of these biases and these these like inequalities but also the desiccation stuff is, is really cool so definitely check out um her research page but yeah i i don't know i think it can all i, I found it really interesting i found like this is yeah. cool and interest i mean yeah like yeah absolutely yeah I, I don't i don't want to sound it also so so negative it's it's really cool and it's always like helps us to understand things better but now to something completely different um i want to talk about fungi and plants fungi and plants um and so like i wrote down a, like a very basic sentence and it says like some fungi are symbiotic to plants and some fungi are pathogenic to plants so some plant some some fungi help some fungi harm and in a, a group of researchers was trying to understand better what's going on there and here is where it's analogy time and i came up with an analogy to understand what they were doing in this uh, paper so if you imagine you have a house the house is a plant and um, you want to understand how people get in the house that shouldn't be there. So not the people who live in the house, they're sort of part of the plant, but people like locksmiths and burglars that can both open the doors to get in there. Um, but they have very different like objectives there. The, the, the locksmith help the people who are locked out and the burglars want to steal your stuff. Uh, and now you want to understand how do they get in there and what do they do and then so and you are a person that looks at it from the outside and you don't really understand how tools work so you just like open their bags tip them out look at all of the different tools that they have and then you start to compare them and figure out like what tools look similar you find like tools when you press a button something spins at the, uh, at the front and you find a tool that's like sort of like flat at the end um i want one that goes like weep, 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 when yeah a tool like that for example or like a long piece of wire and you so you look at these and one um, of them is just a rock also <laughs> yes um and so you you find things um with very similar shapes and so you you conclude that they seem to be using very similar tools to do their work and this is what the researchers did with the fungi as well so they used um artificial intelligence alphafold tool uh, alphafold 2 so this like protein structure prediction tool um and looked at like two very distantly related species of fungi and all of the proteins that they have and just the protein sequences. And then they used AlphaFold 2 to predict what these sequences look like in three-dimensional shapes. And then they compared so them. Just two different species? Uh, I think just two main different species or like two families of species. Um, like one bad one and one good one. Exactly. One pathogenic one that uh, creates the so-called so fold proteins. Um, they are like these fold proteins played a role, for example, in the wiping out of the Cavendish banana, something we talked about in the past, like a fungal disease that attacked the banana plants and killed them. And um, 
yeah, so this this was was this uh, pathogenic group, and then they had like I don't remember the species name of the symbionts, but they were like a nice fungus that plays with to, together with the plants. And what they found when they looked at all of the protein sequences or structures predicted by AlphaFold, um, that the good guys, the symbionts, they have a group of proteins that looks very much like the fold proteins of the pathogens. And we know that the fold proteins are important for the pathogens to attack the plant. And apparently the symbionts have something very similar. And the researchers had to use the AI to look at that because they couldn't just, because they were so distantly related, they couldn't just compare the direct protein sequences to one another because like they were very different um, they would not properly align, but sort of the the end result of the protein look very similar. It's like you you get the tools from two different brands or made from two different metals. So if you look at them from a very close point of view, you're looking like, oh, this one is sort of a different steel than the other thing. So it can't be the same thing. But then you look uh, at it I from was... a bigger picture, you see, oh, they're both pliers. They're just like with different colors and different steel so when you look at the material they don't look anything like uh, alike but when you look at the function what they do both of them are pliers and this is how they looked at the proteins i was thinking like one of them has like a, a long strip of paper that they like origami fold into a rock and the other one just has like a bit of paper they scrunch into a rock and it's both a rock Oh yeah, that's also a very good uh, analogy. So and so you Thank you, Yano. <laughs> and then if you look at the creases of it, like the origami and the, the crunched up things, the creases look very different. So you're like, yeah, this can't be the same thing, but the end Yeah, it's a long shape, strip of paper. The end, still a rock. Yeah, and the end shape is a rock. Yeah, a paper rock. It's probably like a terrible tool to break a window, but um apparently it works. Um so the the, the findings of that um indicate that if we like now if you want to like shape your your house in a way that it's easier for the locksmith to get into to help you to get in there it also means the burglars have an easier time to get in there so if we breed plants that are more susceptible to symbiotic fungi probably we're also opening the door for pathogenic fungi to have an easier time so that makes it much more complicated to have like a straightforward breeding approach where you think like oh we we realized the good guy fungi, they use these and that proteins, so we make, like, we breed a plant that adapts very well to these proteins, and then they, the two can play together, because then inadvertently you also make it much easier for the pathogens to get in the plant. Um, and so now the researchers are actually looking into the function of these different proteins that I identified to figure out if they can distinguish them at a certain like level of detail and figure out, okay, they on, a, on the overall structure look very similar, but maybe they attack different receptors on the plant and therefore this is where you can then direct your breeding efforts at and to, to make plants more happy to play with the symbionts while locking out the pathogens. Um so yeah, uh, but I found it all very cool that they like use these these like these predictors now. Like we've we've, seen, we've talked about it in the past that it's like really cool to predict these protein structures. Um, and in itself, it's a cool tool. But now they like using building on top of that and doing like comparative research with that, and I found that very cool. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. I think that's it's a bit pro like there's not really a nice neat solution at the end there where it's like okay, but the solution is this, but yeah and it also shows that like these these fungi they're like they're very very like dive like far away from each other evolutionary on an evolutionary scale and still like evolved into like very similar tools to get into the plant which tells us but something. i guess that yeah that also makes sense in the context of like the plants are not really trying to make it easy for everyone to get in right so yeah. that's kind of one of these like yeah 
So it's sort of probably one of the easiest ways to get in the plant. And so like multiple people, like multiple fungi came up with the same solution. Um, so yeah, the paper is called A Pathogen Effective Fold Diversified in Symbiotic Fungi from uh, Albin Tule et al. Published in New Phytologist. That's open access, so you can read the whole thing. So the final story that I brought today um, is uh, now a study that wanted to figure out what drives the mutation rates in particularly in trees here so is like they wanted to know if a fast growing tree makes more mistakes sort of while growing and so has more mutations in their dna than a slow growing tree sort of like is somebody that rushes cell division um prone to more mutation and mutation can Which be good and expect, bad right like i would expect like if you're you know, you're going to reproduce fast, so who cares if you ruin the rest of your body while you're, like, as long as you get the reproduction bit right. Yeah. Who cares? I would kind of expect that. Yeah, also it can be, like, beneficial if you have lots of mutations, you have more diversity, and uh, then your offspring can be more diverse, have more chances of finding new solutions to upcoming problems. So um, it's it could be a, a benef- benefit to have uh, have more mutations. So what they looked at is like trees of like um, two species that are very closely related. One of them is very fast growing and one of them is very slow growing. And they took samples, uh, like somatic samples um, of uh, different, I think from like wood samples from the, like the core and also like leaf samples and extracted DNA from it and analyzed the um, uh, single nucleotide variation. So... We, we, I think we talked about single nucleotide polymorphisms in the past. This is something very similar. So you just look at like individual nucleotides, how much variation you see between different samples and what that, that te- is sort of a measure for how many mutations you have there. Um, and when they looked at trees of comparable size, uh, they found that the slow growers had many more mutations than the fast growers. Sort of the opposite, what you would expect from the idea that something is very fast, makes more mistakes and might have more mutations. So it seems like the slow growth gives us more mutations. But here's a like something where like normalization comes in. Like what do you base? Like what is sort of your normalizing step or what, what variable you would normalize your data to? And in this case... In the beginning, they did it based on sort of size uh, of of the tree, but then they normalized it to growth time, age of the tree. And when they did that, they figured out that, that uh, per year of growth, both the fast grower and the slow grower accumulate the same amount of mutations. And because the fast grower takes less time to get to the same size as the the, the old the slow grower, um, they just spent less time growing and. St- accumulated less uh, mutations and so in the end it, it uh, they said that it's it's a time dependent variable so the longer you grow the more exposure to the environment you have cosmic radiation uv radiation all of this stuff um, and the more mutations you accumulate so in the end it's the slow grower that uh, accumulates more total mutations to reach a certain size than the fast growing plant um yeah, and I found yeah, I found it quite like when you think about it, it sort of makes sense. It's just like if if you think that the main source of mutations is exposure to environmental factors that like change the chemical structure mm. of the DNA, then yeah, it makes sense that the longer you are exposed to it, the more mutations you get. Um and that the cellular machinery plays a, a minor role because in the end like most cells try to not make mistakes and they're sort of optimized for that. So um, that's why the, the fast growth doesn't actually 
produce more mutations. Yeah, that's cool. That's really nice. So, and just to be complete here as well, the paper is published in eLife. It's called The Molecular Clock in Long-Lived Tropical Trees is Independent of Growth Rates uh, from Akiko Satake et al. And it's a peer-reviewed preprint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I, I actually haven't, I realized I haven't looked at eLife since eLife 2.0 or 2.3 or whatever it's called currently. Um, So it's, they are publishing now the reviewer comments. You can check those out as well. And then they, they give this classification. So this study is classified as important. It's an important contribution. And the authors provide compelling evidence. So that's those two factors of like how sexy it is. It's important. And how how well the, the data actually backs the sexiness. It's compelling. So hmm. cool. Yeah, I, I did not understand that system yet. So <laughs> thank you for clarifying that. Um but yeah, so, so it's like like we all often wait. say that like be careful about preprints, but this one is a preprint that has actually been looked at by other people and assessed by other people. It's not just self-published by the group. Yeah, so the two categories is significance, which is like the this is like going to change the field, and that has five categories: landmark, fundamental, important, valuable, and useful. So that's kind of like top down i think like landmark oh my gosh amazing profound implications and then strength of support is exceptional compelling convincing solid and incomplete and then inadequate yeah so you can tell from from those words basically the level of each so this was like the third out of five as like the the overall impact and then it was um the second out of the six as far as like the support of the yeah data but i guess so with the new system the authors now have the possibility to follow up on the peer review um do like whatever corrections are suggested blah, blah blah and then like resubmit as this kind of like final published version which i'm not sure what they're calling in e-life i actually haven't haven't made my way through that recently yeah I just found like while looking through like all of the supplemental material something um, that I can do a shameless self plug on these. like because the, the the group they published the code that they use the bioinformatic code um, for the entire research they published that on GitHub and I recently wrote for my work uh, a piece about like uh, free and open source software and science um, and I originally wrote it in German but also translated it in English so I can link that here as well uh, where I talked to different researchers about why or why they aren't uh, publishing their code on on like as open source code because like if you want to uh, like replicate a study you sort of need the code as well to do a good job on it because otherwise there might be something in the analysis pipeline that you can't replicate. And so I talked to a couple of people and they told me stuff like, uh, overall, like it's it gets more and more common. And as I see now, like in eLife, there's literally like a section that says like code availability and then a link to GitHub where you can find the code. Um, there's like the Journal of Open Source Software, for example, that is just there so that researchers can like submit their, their software that they wrote and then it can get a, a digital object identifier, the DOI number, and a place to collect citations from so people can properly cite the software that they're using. Um, so it's it's happening more and more, but still um, a lot of a lot of code sort of remains on the computers of the researchers and people write things in their papers like, code made available upon reasonable request and stuff like that that sort of means yeah yeah if you ask nicely then i'll do my best to like collect six to nine months yeah yeah but it's changing now so more and more um 
there's more and more focus on that because I think it's also it becomes more and more necessary if you look at all of like the huge data sets that coming out of bioinformatics. Uh, software is just such an integral part of doing your research, and so it becomes more acknowledged that you have to publish that then in a way that's accessible as well. All right, edit back. Um, <laughs> when I just went into like a 15, 20 minute discussion about, which started with discussing uh, how eLife is now doing their eLife 2.0 system of reviewing. And it went through the question of paying reviewers and then somehow jumped from that to like the scientific system. And then again, like climate change in the world is broken. Like violence was suggested, surprisingly, <laughs> Like unsurprisingly, violence was suggested. Surprisingly, it wasn't me who suggested it. It was actually Yoram. Um, and Yoram also suggested that to really solve the climate crisis, we have to dance the IPCC. Um, so that was, <laughs> I think that was the conclusion of our talk. And I think now it's time for us to switch back into plant mode or more specifically into cat mode. And I am going to tell you about my favorite cat. <laughs> Cat fact. Um, the cat of the week of the month, actually of last month, is Zeno Hilla Truncata. Um, as you might have guessed, <laughs> it's not a cat. But you you can also notice that there is in fact the word cat in the species name, which is a lot closer than Yoram usually comes to an actual cat. Xenohila um, <laughs> is actually a frog. Um, it's a tree frog that is found in Brazil. And it's a very special frog because it might just be the first frog that is involved in the pollination of a plant. Not just the first frog, but the first amphibian in the whole bunch of things that croak and slime and hop. I think those are the main attributes of amphibians as a cluster. <laughs> Sliminess, really. Um so this this guy um, has been sort of reported on. It was at the first of May, so as I said, like two months ago, almost now. Um, but scientists observe this frog um, going into the um, eating. Like it's a fructivore, which is kind of also a weird thing for a frog. Frogs tend to, you know, eat bugs. That's kind of their jam. This one likes to eat fruit, um, and it, it also likes to eat nectar. So it's also a little bit of a sugar addict. Um, and it does this in the milk fruit tree. So scientists observed that this frog was going into the flowers of the milk fruit tree and it was coming out and it had pollen kind of on its back. So this is reported as might be the first pollinating amphibium known to science um, because yes, the frog goes into flowers. Yes, it loves getting that sweet, sweet nectar. Yes, when it does that, it gets pollen all over its sticky, disgusting, clammy, moist body. Um, I actually love frogs, but you know, uh, they don't have good <laughs> press. Um, but it's not actually 100% shown that, you know, this sticky, disgusting pollen on its body is actually pollinating the next flower. So I think there's like, there's like the old, this looks really likely, like he's rubbing himself in pollen and then going on to another flower and he's again rubbing himself in the flower. It seems quite likely that there is the potential for pollination, but it's, it's not like actually being proven. So nonetheless, I think um, pretty cool. Yeah, pretty I good cat. At this point, and we, we're coming close to the to the point where it's easier to name the things that are not pollinators, like the groups of species that are not pollinating anything, because we're finding more and more, like from like mice and rodents. Um, I was going to say a rabbit. A rabbit rarely pollinates. Then like butterflies and moths and 
Um, I think all insects. We've discovered we decided like basically insects like sure they do that. Um Yeah. And now we have like amphibians doing that. So at at one point there will be like much also. one like one single rabbit sitting somewhere being like I I'm I'm the one that hasn't pollinated yet. Well, well everybody I mean, like, else the, the, is covered in pollen and being like do your part rabbit, do your part. Like the true cats have not yet been seen to pollinate something, so I guess that's like There's a, probably images of a pollen covered cat online, so no, I guess I guess the thing is like I think um you, if you're looking for sort of reward based pollination, I think um I think I'm not sure that cats have a sweet tooth, right? I think some animals can't really sense sweet flavors, yeah. so like you'd need. I mean, but then like some of the flies are anyway going for like disgusting, rotting, meaty smells. So maybe a dog could like but maybe pollinate the cats like, are, a, like the cats are catching the mice that are pollinating, and the cats are inadvertently also pollinating. That so. seems too indirect. I was thinking more like there must be some flower out there that smells like fish. Like there must be if there's a rotting meat flower, there must be like a fish flower. I mean, there's literally catnip. Like catnip could be pollinated by cats. Yeah, that's true. All right. Get on it, researchers. <laughs> I think you could write an opinion piece on that. I think you could write, like, actually, I think that A very this is what's unbased happening. opinion. Just like, I'm of the opinion that catnip should be pollinated by cats. Otherwise, why would it even be called catnip? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> the end. End of opinion. <laughs> XO, XO, <laughs> Yoram. With that, I think it's time to end the show. Um, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to read more about plant science, you can find our website on plantsandpipettes.com. We have like a backlog of really cool posts and articles about all kinds of weird plant stories. Also, cat stories from time to time. Mm. We have um, the Facebook and we have the Instagram and that's at Plants and Pipettes. We have the Twitter and that's at Plants Pipettes. And apparently we also have the Mastodon, which is... At Plants and Pipettes at podcast.social on Mastodon. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. If you like this show, tell a friend or foe or fish or what... Fern, <laughs> Fern. or feathered <laughs> About this show. Finder. Um, rate us wherever you can rate podcasts if you feel like it, but yeah and <laughs> yeah, most, I wanted to make like some sort of comment about like call to action ever you know what like live your life um, we'll be do, happy who am I to tell you what to do really um, have a we actually don't even know you exist you know we exist we don't really know you exist to be exactly. honest like we're talking how's that for your self esteem we're talking into the void and the void sometimes raids us back but so please void uh, rate more. Uh, anyway, have a good time. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. <laughs>